0: Well, today we're beginning a new sermon series entitled The Acts of the Apostles as we embark on a journey together through the book of Acts. And the first sermon in this series, which is rooted in chapter one of Acts, will focus on the providence of God. And just to make sure that we're all on the same page as to the definition and nature of divine providence, when we talk about God's providence, we're talking about his intervention in the world by uh, the means by and through which God governs all things. If you believe that God is ultimately in control of everything, as I do, then you believe in the doctrine of divine providence. There are many who do not believe this. There are Christians who say that God is rarely, if ever, in control, that the world, because of sin and free will, has run amuck, and God has no control over any of it. He's simply sitting back, somewhat disengaged and sad, at the current state of our world, and he's waiting for the appointed time When he will take back control. Well, I concur that much of what is happening in the world today surely saddens God. I agree that because of sin and free will, society continues to distance itself from him and the principles outlined in scripture that he intended for us to live by. However, there is, in my opinion, far too much scriptural evidence in support of the providence of God for me to dismiss it outright. God is in control of the good and the bad. In Matthew 5.45, Jesus, speaking of the Father, says he makes his Son rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. Ecclesiastes 7.14 says, In the day of prosperity, be joyful, and in the day of adversity, consider, God has made the one as well as the other, so that man may not find out anything that will be after him. Okay? So the whole picture obviously isn't clear to us. But what is clear is that God is ultimately in control. And just as portrayed in the video, God has a plan and a will for you before, during, and after every circumstance of life. And he's working in and through you and in and through others and in and through circumstances to accomplish that will. So we can choose in our own free will to be congruent with his plan, in agreement with his will, or we can choose to be in tension with his will. But either way, he never loses control. He's always working providentially in the lives of people and in the situations and circumstances of life to bring about his purposes in the end. And that should bring us great comfort, knowing that even when we fail to get every single detail of life perfectly right, he's still working on our behalf. Because he loves us. And his, in his providence, he's working constantly for our good. Ephesians 1.11. Paul says that in him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. That means that God uses <coughs> human means to fulfill what he has ordained. And then people inevitably ask, well, are you saying then that God should be blamed for all of the evil in the world? It's a fair question. The answer is no, not at all. Nor do Paul or the other biblical writers blame God for sin or evil. And by the way, this doesn't contradict the passages that we just read either because there is often a difference between difficult circumstances, our struggles, and evil. Not all of our struggles, not all of our difficult circumstances that we face in life are evil. So God allows all sorts of difficulties and struggles for many different reasons, but scripture doesn't say that he's to be blamed for evil or sin in the world, not at all. What the Bible does teach us is that in spite of sin, suffering and all manner of evil in the world, that because God loves us and is sovereign over all, he providentially works everything together to accomplish his will. In other words, even though we mess things up, because we do have free will, he still uses our messed up things to do good. So we don't blame God for the bad things. We thank him for the good things that he produces out of the bad circumstances that humanity creates. Does that make sense? Um, I used to build houses for a living. I've been in ministry for 20 years, but I did that um, not as a vocation for, for most of the time built homes. And my parents decided they wanted a new home built at one point. So we built them a new home and we were far along in the process nearing completion. And my dad called me and he said, Hey, um, I need to, we're going to do some things in the house. And I said, okay, what? And he said, well, we're going to, we're going to make sure all the doors are three foot doors and that there are handles instead of knobs and there are grab bars and all the bathrooms and higher toilets and all these sorts of things you would do if someone were say, in a wheelchair he said we're getting older and we need to do these things and I said okay and he said uh, you know it's a little late but we'll make all that work and he said by the way we're gonna put in an elevator <laughs> and I said dad that you know I was with you up until the elevator part <laughs> Do you have any idea how much an elevator cost that's it, really extreme and and unnecessary and is politely and as honoring as I could tell my own father that he would lost his mind. <clears throat> and everybody in the family told him he lost his mind. You're crazy, Dad. This is, there's no sense in putting an elevator. But he was insistent. And so we put an elevator in their home. And so Mom and Dad moved in their brand new house, and everything was great. They've been in good health. And without warning and very rapidly, my mother uh, came down with a very rare autoimmune disorder disease. And was hospitalized and within a few weeks was in a coma and within a few weeks we thought she was we were gonna lose her doctors were saying she she may not make it and so through many many weeks and thousands of people praying God healed my mom brought her back great doctors medication treatment uh, a whole lot of therapy and she's in great health today and we praise God for that but I want to tell you something interesting (laughs) When mom left the hospital and for some time after that, she was in a wheelchair and when they came home, there were three ways to get to the living part of the house because there's a big full basement, but the living area is upstairs. There's 19 steps through the basement up to the main floor, which wasn't going to happen with my mom and my 80 year old father and mom in a wheelchair there's an extremely steep incline around the outside to a set of steps up to a porch into the main area, which wasn't going to happen. Or you could pull into the garage and go into the elevator and ride upstairs, which is what they did. Amazing. My dad says, uh, that's God giving the answer before you ask the question. I say that's providence. See, we don't blame God for mom's illness That is a result of living in a fallen world, marred by sin and pestilence and disease and all manner of evil. Instead, we praise God for working providentially in dad's life to demand an elevator in their house that made it possible for them to continue living there and live there today. That is divine providence. By the way, now mom doesn't need the elevator, so they pull in the garage and throw their groceries in the elevator and push the button and they go upstairs and collect the groceries. It's pretty cool. (laughs) the continual working of God in and through us so that in the end his purposes are accomplished and that's what we see happening certainly in people's lives today and with the apostles in our text this morning so in a moment we'll turn to acts the acts of the apostles also known as the book of acts and we'll start right from the beginning at chapter 1 and verse 1 the book of acts is the second part of a two-volume work by Luke the first volume is Luke's gospel account so the the book of acts is a follow-up to the book of Luke Both books are dedicated to a person named Theophilus, and right from the start of Acts 1, we see Luke referring explicitly back to his gospel. During the apostolic age, uh, books were obviously not typeset with machinery, uh, as we're accustomed to today. They were written by hand, uh, generally on parchment scrolls made out of papyrus. And in antiquity, the standard length of a scroll, uh, like the book of Luke or Acts, would have been 35 feet long. And although uh, the book of Luke and the book of Acts were written on separate scrolls, they were originally kept together because they were a two-volume set. So you can imagine these two large scrolls being transported around from church to church. And then it was later, as the churches made it their practice, to collect the four uh, biographical sketches of Jesus' life that we refer to as the Gospels and study them together. It was then that the two scrolls of Luke and Acts were separated. But it makes more sense that we study them together. And the reason I bring all that up is just to clarify why we're now working our way through Acts, because we just finished working our way through much of Luke in the last two sermon series, right? And so it's very natural progression uh, for us to continue through Acts. So in just a moment, we're going to read Acts one, where we'll see that providence starts with a promise, okay? I've made it a point not to preach three-point sermons with alliteration. That was so overused so much of my life that it drove me crazy. And so, as you know, we usually end up with one point or two points or 12 points or whatever we end up with. I just follow the text. And it just so happened that today's sermon is a three-point sermon. So forgive me if that bothers you. You probably wouldn't have even known it if I hadn't said anything. It was bothering me all week. Anyway, providence starts with a promise. Okay, if you're keeping an outline, that's point one. And throughout Scripture, God makes numerous Promises to believers. When you seek him, you will find him. Matthew seven, seven through twelve. Uh, Jeremiah twenty-nine thirteen. Deuteronomy four twenty-nine. Uh, he will never leave you or forsake you. Hebrews thirteen, five and six, Deuteronomy thirty-one, six. Come to me, and I will give you rest. Matthew eleven, twenty-eight. Those are general promises to believers, and there were also many specific promises tailored to individuals and the plan that god had for them and we see that in the life of every major character in the bible we won't go through it now but there are many promises to believers in mass throughout the bible and there are specific promises given to individuals in scripture which of course both of those continue today how do we know that the promises in scripture apply to all of us because as we read in ephesians 1 our inheritance has been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. In other words, God's plan for you and me and all the promises that go along with that plan were determined long before we even existed. That's another reason why he says that the calling and the gifts are irrevocable in Romans eleven twenty nine, because he knows the beginning from the end and he wrote the story and everything in between already and our part in it. And the promises for us, therefore, are already set in place, both those general promises to all believers and specific promises that are a part of his calling and plan for your life individually. So we don't have to worry about whether or not there's a promise for our future. There certainly is. We just need to know what the promise is so that we can spend our time and energy striving toward that same goal so that we're working in accordance with his will and his promises for us consider Jonah for a moment. God accomplished his will through Jonah, right? Regardless of how hard Jonah tried to work against God, but I'm sure it could have gone a whole lot easier for Jonah had he not tried to work against God's will, right? The point is God has a plan and a promise for your life. He's going to get you there one way or the other, but in the process of getting there, you get to choose whether you ride the waves and the the ship that God provides for you above the surface or inside the stomach of a fish below the surface. God got Jonah where he wanted him in the end, but Jonah made the journey a lot harder on himself than he had to. There's a promise for every believer and the providence of God is him working in our lives to fulfill that promise. So let's turn to Acts chapter one. And we'll see how providence in the lives of the apostles began with a promise. Acts 1.1. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. Notice Luke says, to the apostles whom he had chosen. In other words, these were not simply the lucky ones who decided to follow Jesus because they had nothing better to do. These men were handpicked by God himself. They were, in fact, the fulfillment of a promise that would ultimately comprise the genesis of the New Testament church, as we'll see in the coming weeks. The point is, God worked providentially in the selection of these 12 men, and Luke recognizes that here in the introduction to his book. So let's continue, verse 3. He presented himself to them after his suffering. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering, suffering by many proofs. Appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. Okay, and the phrase many proofs or many convincing proofs, as some translations have it, is the word tekmerion in the original ancient Greek. And it only appears one time in the entire New Testament. And it means indubitable evidence. Indubitable means impossible to doubt or unquestionable. And it's appropriate that this word occurs one time. Because no other event in biblical history has been confirmed more certainly than his bodily resurrection. Do you believe that? It is unquestionable. Actually, it's impossible to doubt if one truly examines the evidence. From his ten or more appearances to his disciples after the resurrection recorded many times over. The fact that he ate in front of them, dismissing the possibility of it simply being a spirit or an apparition as a spirit cannot eat. The otherwise inexplicable evidence of an empty tomb which was being guarded by highly trained Roman soldiers who who could receive the death penalty for losing a body. The remarkable change, undeniable change in the the disciples, each one of them, the development and wildfire-like spread of the church as a result of the preaching of his resurrection the change to worship on the first day of the week, the observance of Easter Sunday, Resurrection Sunday, and the Lord's Supper over the ages, in addition to the testimonies of the New Testament writers as led and empowered by the Holy Spirit. In fact, an entirely new chapter of world history began with the ministry of Christ, and particularly at his death and resurrection. I'm telling you that no one who is intellectually honest who studies the evidence, can possibly argue with the fact that there was a cataclysmic shift in the world after the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. In point of fact, there are nearly 2.2 billion people on the earth today whose lives have been changed by Jesus Christ, nearly a third of the world's population. That's not counting all those who've come before us and may come after us. Those statistics are staggering. And they're all providential workings by God in order to fulfill a promise that he made before any of these people in the story or any of us existed. Okay, there's a pattern. There's a pattern here with God and man and I want you to recognize it. He works in the lives of people. He works in situations and circumstances providentially so that his promises may be fulfilled in our lives. Let's keep reading verse 4. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the father, which he said, you heard from me for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy spirit. Not many days from now. And here we see a new and specific promise in the last part of verse five, you will be baptized with the Holy spirit. Not many days from now, this promise wasn't for Abraham. It wasn't for Moses or David or Daniel This was a promise for his disciples at the time, and as we'll see next week, for all of those who follow. And to that end, to the fulfillment of this specific promise, as we continue reading, we see God's divine providence working in the lives of his disciples. So let's keep in our text now, and we'll take it a step further, because not only does providence start with a promise, but it proceeds through prayer. Let's pick up the story in verse 6. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, it is not for you to know the times or seasons that the father has fixed by his own authority. In other words, we don't always get the the inside scoop, you know, or the entire plan. There's a promise for each one of us. And by God's providence, he's constantly working to that end. But that doesn't mean that we get the entire playbook all at once. There are times and dates and appointments and relationships and circumstances that are fixed by the Father's own authority. And he will reveal those appointments to us according to his timetable, not necessarily ours. Let's keep reading. Verse 8, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria And to the ends of the earth. He repeats the promise here, which is the great commission. And when he said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up. And a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way that you saw him go into heaven. So Jesus ascends. Into heaven, which is a fulfillment of Psalm 68:18, by the way, in Daniel 7:13, and the disciples stand there completely dumbfounded, as any of us would in that circumstance. And some angels show up and basically say to the disciples, "Hey, fellas, what are you looking at? You're standing here doing nothing. Didn't you hear what Jesus said? It's time to get busy. And so what do they do? Verse 12? Then they returned to Jerusalem from the Mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day journey away. And a Sabbath day journey was a maximum distance that one could uh, travel on the Sabbath without it constituting work, according to Jewish tradition at the time. It was about 2,000 cubits or a little over half a mile. I think it's like 0.6 of a mile. Okay. And then they arrived, verse 13. When they had entered, they went up to the upper room where they went where they were staying, Peter and John and James and Andrew and Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James, the son of Alphaeus and Simon, the zealot and Judas, the son of James. All these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus and his brothers. So what did they do? Right after Jesus ascends into heaven, they walk to Jerusalem as instructed and they start praying. What were they praying about? They were praying about the promise that Jesus just made to them concerning the Holy Spirit. How do we know that? Because Jesus told them to wait for the promise of the Father in verse 4. And waiting on God and prayer are very closely related throughout the Old Testament. When you waited on God for a promise, you prayed for that promise. You prayed for it to come. You asked the Father to fulfill that promise. That might seem... Strange to us. But listen, it is critical that we pray for God's promises in our lives, His purposes to be fulfilled. But but why? And we talk about providence, predestination, sovereignty, right? Then why do I have to pray about promises that have already been determined? Because it's the difference between working with God and working against Him. Prayer aligns our heart with His. And that's really important because our will is definitely not always in line with his will. In fact, even Jesus' will wasn't always in line with the Father's. Do you know that? How can you say that? Well, just look at Luke chapter 22. Jesus is praying right before the crucifixion. What does he pray? Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. In other words, Jesus said, my will is to not have to go through this crucifixion, but not my will. Yours be done. This is why we pray about promises that are already determined. Because our will is not always aligned with God's will, but through prayer, he aligns our heart with his. And ultimately, through that process of praying for his promises and purposes to be fulfilled in our lives, his will becomes our will. Okay, his promises absolutely will come to pass. Regardless, I believe that. But our time spent in prayer about those promises will be the difference between us working with God or working against him. I personally want to be on God's side of things as much as possible, right? And that means a lot of prayer. If there's a promise for your life, a calling to ministry, a promise for a relative, a loved one to be saved, a need to be met, whatever it is, just because it's been promised doesn't mean we can forget about praying for it. On the contrary, we must be completely saturating that promise with prayer because the fulfillment of that promise most likely involves you doing something, as we'll see in a moment in our text. And if your will, your idea, your plan about that promise, that calling, that met need is different than the Father's plan for bringing about the fulfillment of that promise. The answer may be waiting on you getting your heart aligned with God's so that His will becomes your will. And often only then is it that you can see clearly enough to take the appropriate next steps in order to see, finally to see that promise fulfilled in your life. I've met with lots of people over the years who have come to me and said, Pastor, I have a problem and I need some advice. God has promised me X, Y, and Z, but year after year goes by and I haven't seen the fulfillment of that promise yet and one of the first questions that I usually ask is how much time do you spend each day praying about that and although some people certainly do pray about those promises there's a surprising percentage of of believers who say something like well I haven't actually prayed about it yet because I wanted to talk to you first well that may be flattering for me but I have to tell you bad idea Bad idea. By all means, if you've been praying and seeking God for something and you seem to be getting nowhere, then yes, come see me. I will join with you in prayer. I'll give you the most sound biblical counsel that I can. And together we'll believe for an answer from God. But I should never be your first point of contact when it comes to unanswered promises from God. Never. Pray, pray, pray. And then pray some more. He should always be the first person that you seek direction and counsel from. And that comes, of course, from the written word and from copious hours spent in prayer. Okay? And the disciples knew this. They knew it all too well. And still there is yet another aspect to God's providence in our lives that is presented in the, in the final portion of our text today. So just a quick review. Providence starts with a promise. A promise. It proceeds through prayer, and finally it is realized so often through our actions. Let's pick up the story in verse 15. In those days, Peter stood up among the brothers, the company of persons was in all about 120, and said, Brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled. In other words, the promise had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus for he was numbered among us and was allotted his share in this ministry. Now this man acquired a field with the reward of his wickedness and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle and all his bowels gushed out and it became known to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem so that the field was called in their own language, Alkeldama, that is field of blood. For it is written in the book of Psalms, may his camp become desolate and let there be no one to dwell in it and let another take his office. Okay, it's worth noting here that peter's now teaching them from the scriptures so up to this point we have christ's disciples all together in one accord there's unity there's fellowship they're praying and studying the word together and being taught the scriptures together this was the genesis of the new testament church which we often uh, assign that momentous beginning to chapter two of acts and there are some key points to be made there we'll talk about them next week. But here in chapter 1, we see the earliest beginnings of the church. All the makings of the New Testament church. Functioning as a body in unity and prayer and the word just as it should be. And here we see Peter instructing the others that God has been working providentially in all that has happened so far to fulfill the scriptures, including the downfall of Judas. It was part of the promise. Let's continue. Verse 21. So one of the men who have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us, one of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. Okay, Peter's saying God intended for there to be 12 apostles. We're now short one man, so it's time to choose God's man to fill the vacancy. And if you remember back in Matthew 19, 28, Jesus promised that the 12 disciples would sit on 12 thrones in the new world. And judge the twelve tribes of Israel. So once again, we see a promise that will require divine providence in order for it to be fulfilled. Verse 23. And they put forward two, Joseph and Barsabbas, who was also called Justice and Matthias. And they prayed. And they prayed and said, You, Lord, who know the hearts of all, show which one of these two you have chosen to take the place in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. Clearly by their prayers here, we can see that they recognized God's providence, his sovereign hand in their affairs, and specifically here in choosing the 12th apostle. So how did, how did they handle it? Well, first, they prayed to assure that God's will was done. They prayed to align their hearts with the Father's heart, with his will, and then they did something They did something. They took some action. Let's read verse 26. And they cast lots for them, and the lot fell on Matthias, and he was numbered with the 11 apostles. It's significant to note here that although the apostles knew beyond the shadow of a doubt that God would do the choosing, and although they prayed about it, they still recognized the need to take some action in the process. And I really believe that this is where so many believers miss the boat sometimes. We know there's a promise. We believe that God's will is the best way. We pray for his will to be done, and then we sit back and wait to see what happens next. Of course, there are specific times when God says, watch and pray, or wait on me. But generally speaking, we should be full of faith that God will fulfill his promises. We should be saturating those promises in prayer, and then we should be working toward the fulfillment of those promises, believing all the while that by His divine providence, He will direct our steps as we are moving forward. But sometimes believers pray and then sit back on the couch and do nothing, and we wonder why God isn't fulfilling the promise. We are to be men and women of action, guided by the Holy Spirit. Chris Revels and I were just recently discussing the practice of casting lots and the fact that we don't hear about that in scripture after this passage in Acts because once they were baptized in the Holy Spirit, they no longer needed to cast lots. So don't go buy some dice and start asking God questions and throwing them out on the living room floor. God, who often guided through external measures, was now guiding them from within. But the point is he does still guide us. As we're moving, as we're working, acting upon our calling, our promise, our commission to carry out His will. He guides us. A tour guide guides you while you're on the tour, right? As you're moving, doing, going, working. He doesn't guide you from the office and the travel agency. God's providence is realized, it's expressed in our lives as we move forward. Even when we don't have the entire picture in front of us. Even when there's some unknown. I knew there was a promise of full-time ministry for my life since I was a kid. And I saturated that promise in prayer for many, many years. But each time I had an opportunity to enter the ministry full-time, I turned it down because the picture wasn't very clear. I had offers from churches and other ministries over the years. But how much would it pay? How would I make ends meet? How, uh, what would it lead to? Where, where would I end up? N- None of those questions were being answered. So I turned those offers down one after another. Would things be different now if I hadn't turned those down? Would, would this church be further along? I have no idea. And I don't lose any sleep over it because one way or the other, I know that God, by his providence, is getting me where he wants me to be. I may have gotten here quicker had I responded to his calling sooner, but that's in the past. He knows right where I am today, and I'm right where he wants me so what's the difference what made me finally end up here it happened one evening when in desperation I prayed to God about the promise just like I had been for years except this time when he said to me what he had said so many times before he said if you trust me just take a step forward you may not have the whole picture now there may be a lot of uncertainty But if you'll just take that first step, I'll guide you every other step of the way. And finally, I said yes. And from that day to this, my life has been a whirlwind. And I wouldn't trade it for anything. Has it all been perfect? Has it all been comfortable? Has it all made sense? Not by a long shot. Early on, I would pray and say, God, you realize I have to sell everything that I've worked for all these years if we're going to be able to survive. And he would say, Do you trust me? Well, yeah, but I have to cash in my retirement funds and drain my bank accounts and explain to my kids why I can't give them all the things that they're accustomed to having. Do you trust me? Yeah, but <laughs> I'm not really prepared. I'm not even sure I'm qualified to do this. Do you trust me? Okay. Okay, God, you win. I'll do it. And we took that first step into a great unknown. There are people who say, who have said to me, that's irresponsible. God would never ask you to do something so risky. (laughs) Something that could cause you to lose all your worldly possessions, your money, your stuff. Your job, your position, everything you've worked for, that can't be God. Oh yeah? Every person that he called in scripture, he called them to drop everything and come follow him. He called them to leave their jobs, their money, their security, their positions, their influence, their possessions to follow him. That may not be the responsible way according to our culture, but it is most certainly the Jesus way not risky (laughs) the disciples were all martyred brutally killed save one and he got to live alone exiled on an island the rest of his life being a christian is an incredibly risky costly in some parts of the world very dangerous life it's fraught with uncertainty and loss in fact if you've never had to give anything up for the sake of christ you may not be trying hard enough. That statement probably won't win me any popularity contests, I understand, but it's the truth. Here's the good news. The other side of that statement, what we gain in comparison to what we lose when we choose to follow Christ is literally infinitely greater than anything this world could ever possibly offer you. So if there's yet any question in your mind today as to the providence of God in your life, know this. He has a plan and a promise for you. Saturate that promise in prayer and then be prepared to move when he says move. And I I promise you, you will see the divine providential hand of God working in your life like never before. It's true for every one of us. It's also true for the church as a body. And I'm just going to touch on this really quickly as we're getting ready to close. Just as I pray for myself and my family each day, just as I pray for direction and guidance for them, I pray for you and guidance and direction for you and your life. And I pray for this church and direction and guidance for us as a, as a local body. And I want you to know he's been answering those prayers. I don't have time today to give you all the details, but I just want to mention some of where God is leading us the remainder of this year and beyond. And I'm, I'll be telling more about this, telling you more about this in the coming weeks. But God has been telling me it's time for us to expand our reach. He keeps telling me we need to expand our reach. And so, some of the direction that we'll be taking this year, I've been meeting with several people in our church body who I believe and they believe have a calling in their life, many to full-time vocational ministry, and they'd like to see that desire expressed through Upcountry Church. I am believing that this year we're going to add pastoral staff to this church. It's been amazing what God has done so far, but working through me and my wife, there's only so much we can accomplish. We need more leadership Pastoral leadership in the church, and as I prayed for that specifically, God has raised people up from in front of my eyes that I didn't even know, and we see that developing and happening. I believe that's coming this year. Those will probably start as voluntary positions. You know why we want to pay them? Not only because scripture says to, but because there's a huge difference in what a person can accomplish for God in the ministry. When you have 40, 50, 60, 70 hours a week to devote to it than when you have to run in after work in the evenings and give it an hour or two. I did that for 16 years. There's a huge difference. So I understand, but we'll start where we start. We're gonna be adding leadership teams to our ministries. I'm so excited about this because it's gonna involve, I hope all of you, we're gonna form leadership teams around several areas of ministry that we already have in place that need to be shored up underdeveloped ministries. We have some ministries that haven't officially begun yet. We don't have an official prayer ministry. You've talked to Sharon about that a lot. Peggy talked about that. We're going to have teams. We're going to form new ministries. We're going to have team leaders. There's going to be some organization involved to that, but it's going to help us produce more and I believe expand our reach. One very exciting project that is coming up. I've been praying for most of the last six months or so, God, how do we let people know about our church? And I'm not talking about marketing in the traditional sense. I don't mean, how do we let people know that you know our music is the coolest thing? Or how do we let people know that this little church is really cool looking inside or that our programs are cutting edge? That's not what I'm talking about. I've been praying, Lord, how do we let people know about this church, meaning these people, you? Because I honestly believe that what is so amazing about this church is you. The fact that God is working through you the way that he is to touch each other's lives. It's been an incredible thing to see. And when people come here, they feel loved and accepted and a part of this family. So I've been praying, God, how do we let people know outside of the church about that? Because that doesn't translate on a flyer or a billboard. I don't know, how do we, how do we let people know that? And I've really been getting a bit agitated in my spirit like, God, I need you to tell me. Because I know it's what we, people need to know, who you are and what's going on in this church. So I went to a conference last week. And God's providence kicked a door open right in front of me. An amazing opportunity for our church. We've signed a contract with a publishing company in Oregon that's going to produce a full-length book from UpCountry Church that tells our stories, many of your stories. A full-length book to be on Amazon, all that sort of stuff. But the program that they do for churches is unbelievable, and I don't have time to today. I'll tell you about it in the coming weeks, how it will be distributed. Potentially thousands of copies all around the upstate will be mailed out to homes for free over a period of 12 months. All right, some of that is going to have to be underwritten by us in, in a surprisingly small amount. But we're going to we're gonna have to get involved with our checkbook in some cases to make this happen. There's too much to tell you about today, but here's the point. This year, if we're going to answer the call and see the promises for ourselves and for Upcountry Church Fulfilled, we're going, we're going to have to take some steps forward. We're going to have to take some steps forward. That's going to mean risk. That's going to mean committing our time, our money, our talents, a lot of hard work toward this mission. But I'm telling you with as much conviction that I can muster as we move forward in each of these areas, we will, I am convinced, see him working providentially in our church and of course in our own lives. Why? Because God has a plan. And you are part of it. Don't ever doubt that. Let's pray. Jeannie.